Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living Sofa. Busy Living Sofa. Busy Living Sofa. I am really excited for episode 245 because Timmy Brooks, I've known since, um, how long have I known you? 10 years, probably over 10 years. Seven. Seven. Well, I've known your parents. I didn't know you. I've known your parents for a long time. But, um, and Timmy is the operator of Synergy Homes based in, where are you based in Pennsylvania? I know Wayne. Chester. Westchester, Pennsylvania. And so Timmy has a really amazing story of hope. There's a lot of hope in your story, Timmy. Some days. <laughs> well, I know not every day can be, but if you watch your life for the past seven years and you think about what it was like, what happened and what it's like now, it's totally changed dramatically from what it was like, right? Because it was kind of bleak. Will you give us some background of what it was like? Yeah, it was, uh, it was painful at the end, at least. Um, grew up in a, in a great family, parents that cared for me, taught me the difference between right and wrong, wanted the best, super privileged to have a lot of great opportunities. And um, kind of early on, like, knew that, uh, Drugs and alcohol were, were bad just through the dialogue within my family and the addiction that's riddled within and kind of approached life thinking like, hey, not going to go near that stuff. And 13, 14 years old, that changed. And at 18 years old, I uh, had some detectives knocking on my door, delivering 13 felonies for a whole lot of mistakes I'd made as a direct result of just lying to the world, getting tuned up as often as I could, uh, disrespecting the people that cared for me and loved me and leveraging the opportunities I had. Um, it was, it's everything you hear, right? It's like, it started to be fun and it was something that helped and it made me feel comfortable in my myself. And then by the end, it was not fun. It was something I was doing alone. It was something I had to do and not that I wanted to do. I constantly was telling myself, it'll get better. I just need to get to college. I just want my mom off my back. Like, and, but, like most of us just evolved in this vicious cycle of uh, getting to a point where the best, the best things in my life and the people that love me the most are becoming the most frustrated with who I am and the decisions that I'm making, which for me kind of evolved into these legal consequences that, that changed the gear dramatically. Well, isn't it interesting because I like that you mentioned that you came from you know, a really nice family and so many people want to assume that the addict comes from, and not to, for lack of a better, like shameless, let's say shameless, like our lives were just like shameless. We all grew up on the South side of Chicago or in not a great neighborhood, but you grew up in a very nice neighborhood. You went to a very nice school and you were a really good athlete, weren't you? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I love to play sports. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, in on the other side of the coin in recovery you hear people talk about like why did they use or drink and there's like you know i didn't like the way i feel or i was self-medicating or i broke my leg and i got drugs and that took me down a spiral and then there's like um you know it's all that i you know for the less privileged you see a lot of times like it's all that i had to it, it was what community guided me toward and then for, for me it was always been like drugs and alcohol are fun at least they started to be fun and and that's life was about maximizing fun at all costs at the cost of relationships and opportunity and privilege and all that shit um can i swear on this i didn't even ask yeah. 
Yeah. And um, and uh, and so yeah, it, but it doesn't discriminate. I think we all know that very clearly. It touches all walks of life. But did, did you know, I don't know if you know this, and I think it's statistically proven, that it is harder sometimes for people that come from privilege to actually get sober because we put so many band-aids on it. And I think that, um, so your family, like my family, has a lot of addiction in it, right? So we grew up knowing that there was this thing called like alcoholics, alcoholism, but we never like feared those warnings. It was like, oh, you could be this, but we were like, we're invincible. This isn't gonna happen, right? Yeah, you know, in, in, uh, at Synergy Houses, we, we serve a more affluent community of young adult males. And I do a lot of work with parents and, and there's, this, there's a line within the education of like addiction with parents where, you know, you'd kind of talk about, talk about it in this reference of like, you know, Johnny makes a mistake and you draw a line in the sand and say, hey, if you do that again, this is gonna happen. And most times what, often's, what happens most is when he makes that mistake, the parents just back up three steps and then draw another line in the sand. And, and you see that with, with money and opportunity and love and enabling. And, and there's lines like, you know, enabling never causes addiction, but it can kill an addict. And just naturally in, in less, less privileged environments, uh, the weight of those consequences are felt uh, earlier, sooner, the more drastic. But what's tough is that those those people that have a tendency to feel the weight of their consequences in a more natural way, they have less access to great treatment. Right? They're on they're on state funded uh, healthcare plans, and they're going into facilities that are overpopulated with less qualified staff, or they're resorting to more of a backbone like twelve step program. Do it, go in there and listen to a bunch of people who have been there, done that. Um, different from like the world of really high functioning private insurance, like dynamic scope of treatment where it's, it's, it tends to be, um, in my opinion, a more dynamic system of like family enabling. And, you know, this person has a trust fund. So they have a, they, if they want to hit the fuck up button, it's actually not going to be that bad because they can go to Tahiti for 30 days and, and things like that, that make a huge difference in like what, what makes us tick like what's going to motivate us to change and for for everyone that has what i want they always talk about like the consequences were so bad that i was just i was so convinced i would head back there that i had to listen to what was being offered to me and what do you think it was for you because i was privileged i feel privileged that i got to see you and it was and um not to talk out of turn or make whatever i have to say that timmy grew up in an area that everybody you know, like a lot of a lot of neighborhoods in America, people like to ch chit chat and talk, 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 and there's lots of gossip. And Timmy, a lot of people, there was a lot of media, there was a lot of background chit, 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 chit going on. And a lot of people that definitely weren't cheering you on. And I think that our society doesn't always cheer somebody on when they're in the going through something really hard. You know, we think that we would rise our person up and help them to get to a better place. But you had a lot of challenges in the beginning. And so did your family with people that were criticizing you and people that were talking about you, but you rose above that. And I want to know, what were some of the tools you think that you used that help you to help you rise above everything that was talked about, all that, that shame? Because it was like, you were like, if there were like a, a big fog of shame, it was like all around you. Like I just to describe it to the listener. I mean, 
I saw it and it was just, it was like walking through like the deepest, darkest shame and everybody was doing it around you, but you just held your head high and you just persevered and you were like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. What do you think that was? Um, I mean, in a sentence, like I was terrified of going to jail. And as a result of that, I was just willing to do what I was told. And 95% of my first year of sobriety, like I did what I was told and I hated every minute of it. I didn't think it was going to work. I was, I was arrogant in, in the worst way possible in an environment with people that were uh, either really supporting me because they were walking a life of recovery alongside with me offering help or uh, really frustrated by a community that I grew up in that was uh, shaming me and blaming me for big mistakes that I made that I did make. Like in many ways, I deserve that. And, you know, to, to kind of give maybe a little more color, like I, I was selling weed in, in, at 18 years old to a bunch of my peers in high school. And when I was arrested, the media um, kind of grabbed, grabbed hold of the story and and tattooed me pretty hard um, on like Good Morning America and Today Show and a bunch of, you know, fancy Hollywood folks leaving messages on my answering machine wanting to put me on parade. And um, it was it was exactly what I needed in a in the context of, um, you know, in recovery, we talk about like character defects and, and who we were and what we resort to. And I, at my core, like I lie and manipulate, I think about what people want to hear and I create a story to engage um, how they want to hear it and paint my own perception, uh, a picture of that, a picture of my perception into their lap. And I had done that relatively successfully. I had, I had, uh, I had people thought I was a man of good character, not because of who I was, but because of who I, I convinced them I, I was. And, um, and when I got tattooed, it, it pissed some people off just justifiably like hey i thought this was a guy that was living life like that when when there's a you know one of my co-defendants you know ar-15s next to a picture in my face with a whole lot of pot while i'm wearing like you know a fancy suit on my way to my my hedge fund internship when i was 18 like that's a that's fucked up and um and people kind of grabbed hold of that and and it's also i think we grow we live in a community or i know you don't live there now but we used to live in a community i certainly still do where um, there is gossip and there is a lot of uh, people grab onto folks that struggle and, and chaos that's around. And, um, and I also like, I participated in that to an extent prior, prior to kind of going through a cycle of recovery. And I'm sure to some extent my family did. So it wasn't, um, wasn't outside the box for my, for the community that we're a part of to kind of grab hold of something sticky and, and just, you know, make it stickier and which was just part of it. Well, I have to say you are really, I mean, when they describe a warrior, I swear, cause I just envision you like going through all this in this community. And we think that because he, you come from privilege that you can't screw up. You were 18 years old. Let's just face it. A boy's brain isn't even developed until he's 25. That's, that's factual as well. So bringing that around and going to the, because there's so many people that instead of walking through that huge fog, and I know your family was with you the whole time, which was amazing, amazing. And now look at where, and lots of members of the community were with you as well. And we all need that support rather than needing the judgment. And I think that that's something that I would love to change with addiction, because I think that we need 
to love each other rather than judge each other. And especially a young person who obviously you knew right from wrong, right? You knew what you were doing was not right. But again, we're, we're raised to be invincible. We're like, I got this. I can do this and I can get away with it because I got away with so much, right? And I, I don't blame parents around the country that are have probably, there's other parents that have dealt with what your parents and other kids that have dealt with what you've dealt with, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's, uh, we see it, we see it all over the place. And, and, uh, you know, the, I think the family system, something I've learned a lot in the last year and a half of, of working in treatment and creating spaces for young guys and trying to help families access their, their lanes of resources is like the, the family system is immensely important in what's going to either support or challenge somebody, a younger person to try to find a happy life through uh, a path of sobriety. And, um, and it's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard for me. It's, it's hard for guys that we help and, um, and parents have a huge impact on, you know, setting, setting boundaries, creating hard lines, uh, having a sense of what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, actually living true to those boundaries and hard lines when they're broken. Um, they had an impact on me. I mean, when my, when my dad said, you know, we will not pay for your lawyer and you will not live in this house. If you drink or get high, I, um, I did not, I did not want to test those waters in a way different from when I was 13, 14. And he threatened to ground me if, if I didn't, you know, come downstairs and give my grandmother a firm handshake. Right. And, um, so that's a big part of it for sure. And so now that you're here seven years later, you're married, you are the operator of this wonderful resource for the community. And so the mom and dads that are out there, I found, you know, briefly, I was a recovery coach and I saw families and I found it challenging because you say just what you have just, you know, given, talked about. It's like you, the parents say, all right, if you go here, I'm going to take away your credit card. But sometimes parents are like, but I can't take away the credit card because then how are they going to get gas? Mm -hmm. And I, there's such a fine line. I mean, what do you think it is? Somebody mentioned that to me the other day. I said, well, if I knew the answer to this, I'd be a billionaire. But they said, what do you think the real answer is on fixing addiction in this country? What do you think it is? Well, that's a, that's the million dollar question. What is it about fixing addiction? I think, um, I think the main, I think what, what fuels failure is an industry that's completely misaligned, meaning that you have this world of addiction, which is pay for service, whether if it's cash pay or insurance reimbursement and in an environment that would be pay for outcome, it would redefine how people um, provided levels of care. And, and you see Karen, kind of just came out with a study that piggybacks off this statement um, that's more in line with kind of what I'm referencing, but to, to paint this picture, right? Like in, it doesn't take a lot for a scumbag to go out there and create a treatment center and just cycle people through and whether or not those people find a happy, joyous, sober life has no impact on what kind of money he's making. He actually makes more money if the same guy goes 10 times in two years. And so you kind of have this battle internally within the industry of treatment where you have players that are willing to follow a moral compass and do it on the book. And then you have a scope of people who are leveraging uh, insurance laws and reimbursement rates 
and and creating a culture in the most ironic way, like, you know, in an industry that's supposed to teach people how to be honest and true, there's a large group of folks that are going against those very morals. Um, so I think it starts with there and, it, and that trickles into um, every other aspect of treatment, like a community of people that support and open-minded and can help. Um, but I think more than anything, like if there's a way to kind of adjust that scope of service and how it's delivered, it would it would force people to, to change and and you could you could think of it outside of a scope of treatment like if they if they made an apple cheaper than you know one dollar and they made Doritos fifteen dollars because when you eat more Doritos you get diabetes and heart issues and all that stuff then it would it would have an impact or if if you went in for a broken leg and and you got a surgery and the surgery was you know paid based off how well your leg healed. The doctor would probably perform it a little different relative to how it is now. So I think at a super 10,000 foot level, that's, that's my quick stab at, at that big time question. It is, it's a tough question because I think that if it was, we had the answer, everybody would be better today. And I think that one thing I've, I found challenging when I, I've had loved ones that have gone into treatment, you know, you, they ask for a certain amount of money and then they don't tell you like, all right, 28 days later, what you should expect, you know, they think you think you go drop your loved one off for 28 days, they're going to come out and they're gonna be all better and everybody's gonna be all better. And it doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't. I mean, I think the other side of that coin is that when families are supporting their child for treatment, typically families that are less informed probably misunderstand that their behaviors have a huge impact on how their son or daughter is going to be able to be successful. And it's not, it's not organized as a bait and switch, but families interpret that because treatment is hoping to educate and guide them within those 28 days, being the patient and the family mm -hmm. to recognizing that this, what's, what success is going to take is more than that. And then families love to play this card that like, Oh, I got, you know, they did the bait and switch. They're just taking my money. And are there programs out there that probably intentionally do that to leverage a PNL? I'm sure they do, but I think I think that concept gets overplayed by parents more than it deserves to be, and it's and it's more about parents resisting to either see their part in what fueled a chaotic family system, or their part in having lack of desire to actually do some work, which is then going to support the person they care for accessing treatment. And of the people, if somebody wants to come to Synergy, do, and let's say they're 18, and do the parents need to be involved? Yeah, they have to be. I mean, I think our, our process is, um, it encompasses a, a wide scope of service that's centered around the young adult male that's coming into our program, but they're, we're doing parent updates every two weeks, and we're, we're offering services for parents to engage in and their son is engaging in outside clinical resources that have uh, uh, a component where parents are supposed to be engaged. And it's um, some of the most impactful information that we get to learn about our guys that then enables us to make healthy action plans for our guys, usually derives through conversations we have with parents. And, and I think naturally, most parents all want to be a part of it to some extent. And initially, it's it, it on the on the resistance side, it's about seeking information or looking or looking to control it or or wanting to find a pathway to enable it. And 
part of what we do is like is draw those lines between um, said said resident and parents to to let them be successful and then give parents resources so that they can have their own their own lane of resources to to work as well. But it takes change, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it works if you work it in all aspects and everything in, in life. And so it's it it requires a whole lot of work and people that aren't that don't want it or aren't willing. Um, it's not going to happen. And it's a lot of change. I mean, it's the whole family dynamic changing. And I know that um, a lot of people, for some reason or another, aren't crazy about Al-Anon. What is your take on that? I think Al-Anon's a, a, a very uh, amazing resource for parents. And it's a huge educational tool. Um, and it's a really great tool for parents to like have their own identity and recovery that's separate from their their loved one, which might be the most important aspect of it in my mind. Um, and, and it's free. I mean, it's literally free. So that you get, you know, that card that, oh, I can't, I don't have money for me myself. I only have money for my son or daughter or loved one. Like it's bullshit. Go to Alan. Go, go access a world of people that care and support and know how to been there, done that. Um, I think Al-Anon is, uh, I, I certainly understand why not all parents love it. Um, I think different from like in 12 step programs that are centered around what I'm just going to call like, you know, it, for example, AA or NA, right? Like that's, that's a community of people where everyone in there is in recovery, even if it's just a day or occasionally you get the person that's in there not in recovery, but for the most part, everyone's in recovery. And in Al-Anon, my sense of it is that you have like at a high level, two groups, you have people that have a loved one in crisis. And then you have, and then you have uh, people that have a loved one that's through a crisis, which can, which to my knowledge kind of stems like a community that's then giving guidance to people that are, um, that are not, that are in crisis. And that, um, and I know that's not how it's designed to be, right? It's like, like AA and NA, it's meant to be like an individual recovery program that is segregated from that person, but nature of, of what it, how you qualify for Al-Anon, you need to have a loved one that's going through it. Um, so I know par some parents like they don't, they don't want that. They don't respond to feedback in that realm, which is the resistance that I mostly see from the parents that we serve is, is they don't, they embrace, they, they want it to be from a professional or they don't want it at all, or they think they know what's going on. But I think if everybody took a little time to, to go and engage, it, it would certainly help. Well, isn't it true? Because I like for me, I don't know if you feel this way, but I don't like every meeting I go to, you know, I just don't. I mean, some of them I'm like, okay, I'm not coming back to this one again. And I think that a lot of parents and a lot of loved ones, they go to one meeting maybe, and they're like, I hated it. I'm never doing that again. But that's the, I mean, that's the human nature, right? But to keep trying, that's what I want to give people the hope. Don't you think if they kept trying, they'd probably find something. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, people keep, keep trying. You're going to find something you like. You're going to find somebody, you know, somebody you care for, somebody that'll care for you. Totally. So if a mom or dad is listening today and they're like, what would be maybe a couple of things that you would say to them, their child's on fire for lack of a better word. And what do they do? That's a, that's another, that's another big question. Um, you know, most of, 
most of my engagement with family is when that person is has a sense of willingness to engage. And then that kicks into kind of us having a discussion of where, where do people lie? What are they willing to do? What are they not willing to do? And how do we best support them to access treatment? And sometimes it's engaging other resources via an interventionist or a case manager they already have or a therapist and seeing if they're a fit, trying to help them pair with a program that's the best fit for them. Um, when somebody's in, in total chaos and they have somebody that's struggling and, and I'm getting a phone call, I would say the first, the phone call is typically basics around educational pieces that I've learned relative to understanding where do they fall? Where does the parent fall along the scope of like, how do they want to control it? Are they trying to cure it? Are they feeling bad about themselves that they didn't cause it? And, and I, I always offer to hop on the phone with, with, uh, the person that's struggling and, and, and my first question to that guy is almost always like, Hey dude, I'm just a guy that's been there, done that. Like I, whether you listen to me, don't listen to me. I don't give a shit. Like, but I know you got people that love you. And what I'm just looking to gauge is like, where do you fall along this line of like, I want my parents off my fucking back all the way to, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to achieve a life better than what I'm feeling today. And, and then from there, we just ride, we had a conversation and typically people say I'm somewhere in the middle and then 30 minutes later they they recenter and say just want my parents off my back or very rarely do they say I'm willing to do whatever it takes and then that turns into a big move um but that's that's usually my style those are things that I ask um those are always fun calls to be a part of and so I, it's it's interesting that you say that most of them it's like I want to get my family off my back because what percentage would you say are really w want to change I think a lot of people want to change. It's just like, are you willing, right? There's a big difference between like wanting it and being willing. And um, I think most people want to change. They don't like where they are. They're willing to acknowledge that. Um, but to them, it comes with a certain, a, you know, a scope of engagement, which is I want to live where I want to live, or I, I need to have this job, or I want this girlfriend, or, you know, I like my bed or all that stuff. Um, so how, what percentage of people are really willing to change? That's another really hard question. More, most of the people I talk to, are closer to that bucket, just given that um, synergy scope of service is extended care treatment. And so most families and individuals that I talk to, those guys, in order to get my phone number, they've already been vetted as like, hey, this could be a potential good fit for a long-term extended care treatment program like, like Synergies. So tell me this, so the person, so your typical client is someone that has already spent 28 days in a treatment in, in patient Correct. Yeah. So my, so guys go to inpatient res for 30, 60, 90 days, and then either their therapist that, that referred them in there or the case managers or therapists at such treatment center will then, you know, begin to talk about aftercare and, and suggest that maybe we're a good fit for which then I'll do like a 45 minute phone interview kind of discussion period of really explaining to them a whole lot about who we are and what we do and, and what we're, you know, how they could fit into our process, but also gauging like what's their willingness and, and are they a guy that's going to be a good fit for the existing crew that we have currently. And how many beds do you have? We've got 26 beds in a really large 12,000 square foot house. Um, awesome house, 17 bedrooms, all singles and doubles. It's all on the second and third floor. First floor is, is really sweet. Tons of community spaces, ping pong table, pool table, yoga studio, gym in the basement, big commercial kitchen, you know, that's, that's all there. What's really most important is like 
the staff that we have, um, five amazing, amazing uh, people in recovery committed to these guys in this community and our process. Our process is really about um, a structured faith system where, where privileges and flexibilities are earned. Um, one of the questions I always ask guys, I say like, what are your goals? And some people have like super, rarely do you have like a really defined recovery goal. Most people it's like, I just want a job or, you know, I want some independence from mom and dad, or maybe I want to go back to school. And then I, I often say like, do you want to, when you see yourself thriving, like when you start thriving, do you see yourself, you know, being in your childhood bedroom? And most people say like, hell no, that's not what I want. And I say, cool. Cause I'm pretty sure that's what mom and dad want. And I think that's what your treatment team wants. But if we're going to be successful at that, we got some shit to do. Like we got to find stability and foundation and purpose and recovery. We got to learn how to work through conflict resolution. We've got to go through a specific process to overcome our past and make a good understanding of it. We got to clean all that shit up. And then, and then we've got to be able to be accountable and responsible to life. We need to have some sort of structure that we're on time with. We're going to have to prove to the world that we can be a guy that says what we does, say what we do and do what we say. We got to be financially responsible, meaning like when you have 500 bucks in the bank and you got bills to pay, you're not going to go get a $400 tattoo. And, and, and then we also got to give it back to others. Cause if, if we want to have a chance at this, we got to do what people are going to do for you once we get there. And so, so in so many words, like that's what synergy is. That's what we do. We help guys achieve those goals and we do it in a really specific way. Um, we do it in a way where it's fun and it's engaging and, and people can feel the brotherhood of interacting in that community. Um, it encompasses a whole lot of, a whole lot of pieces, pieces outside of synergy, like awesome clinical resources in our backyard and communication with family and a bunch of those resources. But um, I'm lucky, we're lucky. And uh, it's been really cool to watch guys come in and, and leave kind of being a, a totally different person and allowing the community and the staff to really watch that transformation exist. And is there a minimum time frame that you would say it's synergy? Yeah, so we ask guys, we only invite guys in that are committed to 90 days. Um, Love that. That said, success to complete our process is like a six to 10 month uh, venture. And, and we're also really straightforward about that. We say, hey man, like we're only asking for 90 day commitment, but the hope is you come in here and you like, you like what we have and you like where you're headed and, and you see your peers being in a place you want to be and you say, fuck it, I'm going to ride. And, um, and so our average, like I say, in 2020 was just under five months. Um, and then for the, for the 70% of the guys that stayed beyond 60 days, the average like to stay was seven months. So what we do know is that, um, you know, statistically, the longer we stay within a treatment continuum, the better, the better the outcomes are. And, and what we see is the longer guys stay within our continuum, um, the, more, the more they get back, the better their jobs get, the better the relationships get with mom, uh, the better they are at working through conflict resolution, the more financially responsible they become. Um, they they kind of become these people that we all want to be and know we're capable of. When guys yeah, lose it. I love that. Sorry that I interrupted you, but I wanted to say, because I'm so excited, my brain's going 10 million miles a minute, surprise, surprise. But um, I think so many people think that it's just the addiction, but it's like we, when you go into treatment, you're pretty much just getting dried out, right? You're just learn, you're just going to that place where I'm, okay, I'm just getting at zero again. And then you go into treatment and then you come into a place like Synergy and you get to learn to build yourself up. I mean, yes, you have to look backwards a little bit. You know, I always like when, especially if somebody has to do a four step, right? Like that, people are like, oh my God, that's so scary. I'm always like, this is your life. I mean, <laughs> if you can't do your own life. 
And sometimes maybe it's not like staring back, but just going and handling a little bit that's bothering you and just getting that next step forward. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. We have to build ourselves up to start to like ourselves. And we can't like ourselves if we go back and start doing the stuff we used to do, right? Totally. Yeah, everything's got to change. And change is hard for humans. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. But it sounds like, well, it sounds amazing. I think people can check out. I'll put your website on my, I will put your website on the blob that's going to go with the podcast, the little words that are going to go next to it. You know, Timmy, I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited for the people that get to walk through the doors of your facility. I am really, I have to tell you your testament of how things can really change. You know, I can see a light in your eyes. And I do remember when you used to be like, and not really holding your head high, but look at that smile, I love it, I love it. And you're giving back, which is like the best gift of all, isn't it? It's great, yeah, it's fun. I mean, you know, Synergy for me is is not, uh, it's, a, it's, a means, it's a means to a living and I love my job and I love what we get to do and, and we stay true to outcomes being the priority, but it's also very different than me as it relates to being a participator in a 12-step community and having sponsees and, still participating in meetings and and staying regimented with that part of my life and and so that's that's really real um but it's it's awesome to have a career currently in, in an industry that has a lot more meaning than just the dollar bill well i think it sounds like it is it's a career right and you have to have all these ingredients in our lives to make the perfect cake and we still have to go to meetings, but we have to give back. And it sounds like you're giving back most of the stuff that you learned that helped you to get to the place where you are today. And it takes time and it takes perseverance. And it takes love, right? Totally, yeah. Empathy, compassion, all that, all that good stuff. Yeah, so if somebody's out there telling you that you can't do this because of all these bad things, you're a reason, you are a total example of how that cannot get you down. You've got to just rise above it. Yeah, and it's not, my path is nothing special. It was, hey, shut up, listen to what people did and just do it, do what they did. And, and um, you know, what we talk about in the house is like, you know, we don't have to, you don't have to turn a bad hour into a bad day, bad day into a bad week, bad week into a bad month that leads to a big mistake. Like we can, we can work through it. We can, we can talk about it. We can reset the day. We can reset the hour and, um, and adjust. And, um, and that's really what it's about, I think, early on. And being willing. Mm-hmm. Totally. So, so I'm going to end with this. If somebody said to you, I, do, I have nothing. Everything sucks. It's all terrible. And I don't know what's going to happen to me. I've got this person mad at me. The police are mad at me. My mom's mad at me. My siblings are mad at me. My grandparents are mad at me. Everybody's talking about me. What would be your, like, your words of advice to that person? I mean, I would, my first question would be like, what are you willing to do? Like, are you, are, do you want to shit in your sit, shit, sit in your shit and feel bad for yourself? Or are you willing to try another way? And if, if they say, I just want to sit in my shit, then I say, all right, well, there's a, there's a community. If you're anything like me, there's a community out there that's probably just like you, that's been there, done that, has found a pathway that works and they would be happy to, to help you. And here's my number. If you ever change your mind, give me a ring. If, if guy says, yeah, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, then wherever he is, he's probably getting in a car and going somewhere to get better help, which could be a treatment center. It could be 
therapist office could be, you know, my car to go to some sort of recovery-based meeting. Um, but it's got to start somewhere. Well, I'm really excited. To, thanks again for coming on today. No, and thanks for having me. This is great. It and was, Tom, what you've been doing, it's super cool. Appreciate what you bring to the recovery community. It's, uh, it's cool stuff. Well, thanks so much. And anybody who's out there who wants to reach out to Timmy, I, again, I will have his website um, on the little bio that's going to go with the podcast. And until next time, everybody, keep getting busy living sober. Bye-bye.